thank you so much, worship team, and welcome everybody. It's so good to see you this morning. What a great way to start our week, praising the Lord together. And uh, I'm so excited this morning. We've got a special guest with us that I'm uh, happy to introduce to you. Our church for uh, many years has uh, had a long-standing partnership with the Gideons International, a terrific organization that uh, works to get God's Word into the hands of people all over the world. And so today, we've invited our friend Ron Pedersen all the way from Isanti, Minnesota, to come and share with us an update on the Gideons Ministry. So please welcome Ron this morning. I was sitting on the bed, write a suicide letter, when I heard someone coming. I thought it was a guard, so I slipped the letter into the Gideon Bible I was using to write on. The man who came to my cell was a Gideon, who visited the jail every Sunday morning. He usually saw men, but this morning he decided to try some women. The Gideon Gordon Milburn shared scripture with me and told me that God loved me no matter what. He promised to come back and see me after he left. I knew I had to make a decision. I got on my knees and sold out to God and found peace. I told God that I would do whatever he wanted me to do. In the two years I spent in prison, I had the opportunity to share Jesus with many people, inmates and guards. God used me, protected me, provided for me, and brought me home uh, a year earlier than I expected. I've been home three years, have a great job, and spend my time trying to help other people realize what can happen to them if they take their eyes off Jesus. And that's Billy Straisner in Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's what we are all about as Gideons, winning men and women, boys and girls, to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we do that by placing God's word because of Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth that shall not return void, but accomplish what I commission it. A couple of interesting uh, things. There's a insert that you should have in your uh, bulletin today, which is, it gives you more information. You could look at that at your uh, leisure time. But a couple of things that's interesting to me as I was preparing uh, to speak to you today, we're in over 199 countries, although some of them are very difficult uh, to work in because of the Civil War and the violence. But we have uh, uh, scripture printed in 173 different languages, which I thought was very interesting. <clears throat> this is, uh, this is uh, one of the pictures that I like because it shows the open hands. And you can't imagine how precious this little book becomes of the people 
the children in third world countries that don't have anything. They get it, they read it, they love it, and it changes their heart. So with your help, uh, we get scripture out, and of course the boxes go empty, but we go back. With your help, we go back. I think of us Gideons as the hands and the feet to get God's word out. We take no glory, it's God's glory. One of the things that I want to leave you with you is the cards, the cards that we use or have in the back because they bring glory to God and they help us get scripture out. Very, very appropriate. So with that, I want to thank you for being partners with us and uh, we will see many of these people in heaven because of your help. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Ron. It's always so encouraging to hear what God is doing through the power of his word around the world. And Ron and all of the uh, men and women serving in the Gideons are making a huge, huge difference. Uh, today, we're going to pray for the Gideons as we uh, prepare our hearts to go to God's Word ourselves here this morning. We're going to pray for their ministry. And I also want to let you know that following our uh, service this morning, we're going to be taking an exit offering uh, for the Gideons. So if that's something that you're interested in contributing to, our ushers will be at the back doors at the end of the service. Uh, and we're going to be collecting funds to go towards the purchase of Bibles, which will go all over the world. And people will receive those, and they'll read those, and they'll hear God's Word, and, and many will respond and be transformed for eternity. And so I'd encourage you to, to pray about contributing to that. And if you didn't come prepared with, uh, with money to, uh, to give today, uh, as Ron mentioned, you were given an insert this morning, and there's an envelope there where you can uh, mail in a contribution to the Gideons as well. And uh, we'd certainly appreciate your support of that. So let's, uh, let's pray together and ask God's blessing over that ministry and then over our time together as we turn to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege of being together this morning. We thank you for the uh, opportunity to come and worship you. What a great time it is to sing your praises and to just give you honor, glory, and praise as we reflect on who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. It's so encouraging, Jesus, to hear the, the message of the Gideons again today. Thank you for Ron and his time sharing with us. And uh, Lord, we're grateful that as a church we've been able to support this ministry for years and years. And uh, I pray, God, that we would continue to be faithful as a church in championing the, the spread and advance of your word around the world. We, we pray, God, that you would bless the Gideons, get many copies of those Bibles out into the hands of people who need them. And may people's eyes be opened, may their hearts be enlivened by your Holy Spirit as they read your word and see the beauty and power of the, the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, uh, we, we just pray for that. Lord, as we come to you this morning now to look at your word, looking at our series in the gospel of John, Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes and humble our hearts before your word today. We pray, God, that you would give us uh, supernatural wisdom as we discern the truths in this passage and think about what they mean for us in our lives and, and that we would have a, a greater love and appreciation for what we have in Jesus as a result of our time in, in your word together. 
So Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the privilege of going to your word now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, friends, it was interesting as Ron was sharing this morning, I was reminded of an article that I saw recently uh, in USA Today newspaper. It, it was an article and, and uh, the headline was something to the effect of 150 commercial airline flights in the last 30 years have landed in the wrong destination. I mean, just think about that. This particular article was in regards to a story that happened about a year ago, a flight that had taken off from Scotland, I believe, flying to London, England, ended up landing in Frankfurt, Germany. I mean, it's like, how does this happen, right? And and as I read this article, I was reminded of another similar story, uh, a fascinating story that took place back in 2016, a Delta Airlines flight, 2845, that took off from Minneapolis, St. Paul, heading to Rapid City, South Dakota. And uh, this was a flight that this pilot had flown hundreds of times. It was one of his regular routes. He, he knew the route like the back of his hand. And on this particular flight, though, the pilot decided he was going to do something a little bit unorthodox. The pilot decided that he was going to ignore the plane's navigation equipment, the plane's guidance system, and he was going to fly to Rapid City by sight alone. Now, yeah, you're laughing at that, right? I've asked pilots about this, and pilots have told me flying by sight is not all that unusual. Basically, to to fly by sight basically means you look at the visual landmarks that you see outside the cockpit, and, and you fly based on those landmarks. So you'll follow a major highway, or you know that this mountain chain runs north and south, or you know that this river flows this way. And so you'll, you'll follow these landmarks and use those to help get you to your destination. Now, that's not that unusual, but what is unusual is that this particular flight, the pilot decided he was going to just completely ignore the plane's guidance equipment. Now, the pilot took off from Minneapolis. He started heading west towards Rapid City. It's not a long, long flight, maybe a little over an hour. And the pilot's flying, everything's going great, and he looks out in the distance, and there out in the distance he sees the airport, he sees the the runway, and so the pilot begins to prepare the plane for landing, you know, telling the flight attendants and the passengers, you know, get ready for landing, and the pilot brings the plane down, touches down on the runway, just a smooth, beautiful landing, everybody's happy, everybody thinks they've arrived safely at their destination, and all of a sudden, as the plane is taxiing down the runway, out from the airport hangars come a dozen military jeeps with military police with guns, M-16 rifles trained on the plane. They start circling the plane as it's taxiing down the runway with their lights blazing, their sirens blaring. Now, friends, imagine you're one of the 100-plus passengers on this flight, and you see these military police jeeps circling your airplane, right? I mean, what are you going to think? You're going to think there's a terrorist on board, you know, there's a bomb threat. I mean, something's going on. Well, the passengers, they were freaking out. They didn't know what was going on. And the pilot, the pilot and his flight crew started freaking out. They didn't know what was going on. Well, finally, the plane comes to a stop. The military police board the plane. The plane ends up being detained for over three hours as they figure out that this pilot, because he chose to ignore the plane's guidance equipment 
and instead fly the way he thought was best by sight alone, instead of landing at the Rapid City Municipal Airport, this pilot had ended up landing 12 miles off course, 12 miles east of Rapid City at Ellsworth United States Air Force Base. Well, friends, as you know, in our post-9-11 world, right, the U.S. military doesn't look too favorably on commercial airliners landing on their runways. And again, it was a big, big, huge hassle. I mean, the, the plane was held up. The pilot ended up losing his job over this, all because he chose to fly by sight the way that he thought was best instead of following the guidance equipment that he had been given on his plane. Now, I, I share this story with us this morning, friends, because as we have the Gideons here today and, and as we look at the passage we're going to be in this morning, I'm reminded of the reality that God has given us his guidance system for our lives. God has given us navigation equipment to lead us safely through life to our destination, our heavenly home, and all we need to do is follow his guidance that he's given us in his word. But sadly, too often, right, too often we take our eyes off of God's word and we end up flying the, the, the path through life that we think is best. We, we, we ignore what God has told us leads to life and life to the full. And we think, you know, I know better. I'm going to fly the route that I think I want to go. And what happens, friends? So many times we find ourselves landing in destinations where we don't want to be. All because we ignored God's guidance. God's word is the truth, friends. God has given us his truth to lead us to life and life to the full. Now this morning, as we continue on in our series in the Gospel of John, we're going to look at a passage today that reveals for us the tragic consequence, the tragic consequence of rejecting the truth of God's word. Friends, there's nothing more tragic than to, to reject God's truth, his revelation that, that leads to life. And, and so today we're going to look at this consequence, what happens as we, as we reject God's truth. But, but it's not just a, a passage that, that speaks to the consequence, but it also helps us to understand the why. The why behind the reality of so many who turn their backs on God's truth. Friends, have you ever struggled with that, wrestled with that? Why, why do so many people have access to God's word or, or sit in church services or go to evangelistic outreach events and they hear the gospel clearly proclaimed or they read God's word for themselves and yet, sadly, so many people reject God's truth? Why? Well, John, in our passage this morning, gives us an answer to that question. We're in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50 today. And if you remember, Pastor Stephen last week did a great job preaching for us. Pastor Stephen shared with us how Jesus now has, has gone to Jerusalem. It's the Passover, and, and these are the final days of Jesus before his trials and crucifixion. And, and this is the last of Jesus' public ministry, calling the Jews one more time to, to repentance, telling them, as we saw at the end of our passage last week in verses 34, 35, 36, Jesus appealing to the Jews, the light is here, the light is with you, walk in the light while you have the light. And yet, as we're going to see today, the Jews turned their back on the light. They rejected the light. John picks up, 
today. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And in verse 37, John goes on, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees him who sent, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What an interesting passage this is. I'm a big fan of reading history. I love history. I especially enjoy reading uh, early American history. One of the most fascinating friendships in the history of our nation was a very unlikely friendship between George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin. George Whitfield is one of the, the fathers of a, a great revival that took place in America in the 1730s and 1740s, known as the Great Awakening. Tens of millions of people turned to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of this revival. And, and Whitfield was one of the primary agents that God used, preaching to millions of people across our country, calling them to repentance, to faith in Christ. And, and God used that revival in a powerful way. In fact, many historians trace the very founding of our country back to the spiritual influence that, that took place as a result of the great awakening in our nation. Friends, don't ever discount the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a nation. This is why we need to continue to pray for revival ourselves, because God can transform entire cultures through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Well, God used George Whitfield in a powerful way to, to help advance this great revival. But, but Whitfield, interestingly, one of his good friends was one of our nation's founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. And if you know anything about Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin never professed faith in Jesus Christ. Benjamin Franklin was, was an avowed deist. He, he believed in a God, but his God was just this, this vague being who was somewhere out there who, who started everything up and then just kind of let us off on our own. Uh, a disinterested, uninvolved kind of God. 
Well, over the years, Whitfield and Franklin struck up a relationship. They were good friends for 30 years. In fact, Benjamin Franklin published over 40 of Whitfield's sermons in his newspaper, the Philadelphia Gazette. About a dozen of his sermons, he actually gave front-page treatment and coverage. He, he, he would often host Whitfield in his home when, when Whitfield was traveling through Philadelphia. And, and these men were good friends, and, and Whitfield would often share the gospel with Franklin. And yet, in spite of this relationship, Franklin never put his trust in Jesus. In fact, in Benjamin Franklin's biography, uh, his autobiography, Franklin wrote this. He says, he, Whitfield, used sometimes to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Friends, how do we explain Benjamin Franklin and his rejection of the gospel? How can you be friends with one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world and have numerous intimate personal conversations about Jesus Christ and yet still turn your back on God's truth? How does that happen? Well, you know, friends, this was the very question that the Apostle John was seeking to answer in our passage this morning. You see, when John wrote his gospel, one of the questions that the church was asking was, was why? Why did the Jews miss out on Jesus? Why did, did God's chosen people that, that, who had been given the prophecies of the Messiah, who had been given the word pointing to Christ, why is it that these very people that God had blessed and given so much revelation to, why did they turn their backs on Jesus? Well, in our passage this morning, John helps to answer this why question for us. In answering this why question for us, John reveals, number one this morning, the tragedy of unbelief foreordained. The tragedy of unbelief foreordained. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? Why does anyone reject Jesus? Well, to answer these questions, John points us to two interwoven truths that we find not only in our passage this morning, but all throughout Scripture. John points us to these two truths. Number one, human responsibility and God's sovereignty. As human beings, we are responsible and accountable for the choices we make in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we are accountable for whether we choose for Jesus or against Jesus. But at the very same time, the Bible is also clear that God is sovereign over all of these choices. God is sovereign and, and he knows all things and he has foreordained all things and, and, and these two things go hand in hand. They are interwoven truths found throughout Scripture. And as I said here on the slide, the Bible repeatedly puts these truths, human responsibility and God's sovereignty side by side. They're found all throughout Scripture. And here in our opening verses of our passage this morning, as John is seeking to answer the why question, he takes us all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus, and, and he points to the prophet Isaiah, and, and in Isaiah 53, as we see in verse 38, the prophet Isaiah asks, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer to that question in Isaiah's day was no one. 
they haven't believed. Many commentators describe the prophet Isaiah as a failed prophet. In other words, God ordained Isaiah to a ministry of failure. He had gone to the Jews proclaiming the truth to them, calling them back to repentance, and yet they did not embrace God's message. And Isaiah then tells us, John says, well, why? Why did they turn their back on God's truth? And, and John again quotes in verse 40 from Isaiah chapter 6, why did the Jews reject God in Isaiah's day? Why did the Jews reject God in Jesus' day? The answer, John says, is he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. What was taking place in the time of Jesus was actually the continuation of the hardening that had begun 700 years earlier in the days of Isaiah. God had a plan of salvation for the world that included the hardening of the Jewish people against his truth and against the ultimate coming of the Messiah. But interestingly, while this hardening had taken place under the foreordained, prophesied declaration of God, we also see that the people were still responsible for their choice to reject Jesus. Jesus, in verse 36, last week, he calls to the Jews, verse 35 and verse 36, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus makes this appeal to the Jews. Believe, trust, walk in the light. And yet John opens our passage this morning in verse 37. Even though Jesus had done many signs before them, they still did not believe him. They rejected Jesus, and that was on them. They were accountable for their choice to reject Jesus Christ. And so here, John, answering the why question, he puts both of these things side by side. God's sovereign plan, humanity's responsibility, they go hand in hand together. And these truths are taught throughout the Bible. We, we see Peter answering the account of the Jews' rejection of Jesus in one of the earliest sermons of the early church in Acts 2, 22-23. Peter preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, here we see, friends, the salvation plan that God had set in place was foreordained before the foundation of the world, and yet the Jews were still responsible for rejecting Jesus. These two things go hand in hand, friends. God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. There's no contradiction here. One of my seminary professors used to share a great illustration to help explain this concept to us. He talked about the reality of God's sovereignty and our human freedom being two chains descending from the heavens. And, and from our finite human vantage point, these two chains of God's sovereignty and our freedom, they, they look like two separate chains. But if we could see them up in the heavenlies from God's vantage point, we would discover that these two chains are really one that, connect, <coughs> excuse me, 
connect in the perfect nature and character of God. And if we, in our humanness, hang on to one at the expense of the other, we're going to fall. But if we hold on to both of these chains together, we will stand firm and secure. God's sovereignty and humanity's freedom, they go hand in hand. Now, friends, this doesn't just explain why the Jews responded to Jesus the way they did 2,000 years ago, but it also explains Benjamin Franklin's response to Jesus and my response to Jesus and everyone's response to Jesus. God is sovereign over our salvation, and yet we are responsible and accountable for how we respond to the message of the gospel. We look at what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Friends, what is included under the banner of all things? All things, right? God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That includes our salvation. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard, here's our personal responsibility coming in now, right? In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him... We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So here again, we see God's sovereign plan, his sovereign purposes, and our human responsibility to hear the word, to believe the word, to respond in faith to the word, and these two things go hand in hand, side by side, all throughout Scripture. God's sovereignty and our freedom. So John here reveals in our passage that the Jews were morally responsible for rejecting Jesus. They were responsible. They had the light. They were called to respond to the light. Jesus proclaimed the light in their midst, and yet they still did not believe. And at the same time, their rejection had been sovereignly ordained and was prophetically declared by Isaiah 700 years before Christ. They could not believe. Why? Because God had ordained it. Why? Because it was part of God's salvation plan for the whole world. Now, friends, these things are hard for us to understand in our finite humanness, but again, God has revealed them to us as truth. Both of these realities, his sovereignty and our human freedom. But John's not done yet answering the why question for us. Remember, God is sovereign over our salvation, but we're also responsible for the choices we make in response to the light of Christ. And so John goes on for us in our passage to highlight for us one of the primary reasons for why people turn their backs on Jesus. And here we see in verses 42 and 43 the tragedy of unbelief framed. Friends, there are countless reasons for why people turn their backs on Jesus. We've seen many of them in our study. Even two weeks ago, we talked about the reality of pride. And, and because of our pride, we turn our backs on Jesus. We've seen the, the Pharisees and their self-righteousness, and so they turn their backs on Jesus. There are countless reasons why. But here in verses 42 and 43, John brings into clear focus for us one of the primary reasons for why people turn their backs on Jesus. 
As I was thinking about this reality this week, I was reminded of uh, my trip to the Oregon coast two weeks ago. If you ever go to the Oregon coast, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and, and there are so many incredible things you can see. I, I took a picture here for you. Uh, th- this was a, a sunset picture from the beach, Cannon Beach, Oregon, where I was teaching. Uh, any of you young people here, if you're looking for a great one- or two-year Bible college experience, man, it, there are a few places better than Ecola Bible College. Uh, they bring in great teachers every week, and you're literally in one of the most beautiful places in the world. But, but I'm walking the beach one evening, and, and I'm just thinking to myself, how do you even begin to take pictures here? I mean, where do you start? I mean, there's so many incredible things to see. I mean, here in, the, here in this shot, you can see there on the left, that's Terrible Tilly, the famous lighthouse. I've, I've used Tilly as an illustration in some of my sermons in the past, right? I mean, do you focus in on Tilly? Do you, do you focus in on the hundreds of rock formations? Do you focus in on the ocean? I mean, where do you start? And you know, when it comes to the question of why do people turn their backs on Jesus, there are countless things we could look at. And John has revealed many of them for us, but here today, John focuses in on one of the primary causes for people's rejection of Jesus Christ. Here in verses 42 to 43, John frames the shot of human rebellion for us by focusing in on this key reason for why people miss out on Jesus. Let's read these verses again. John says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What an interesting statement. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How does this happen, friends? John says these authorities, these religious leaders, they literally believed in Jesus. They saw his signs. They heard his teaching. They believed, and yet they wouldn't obey and follow Jesus because they were afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue, losing their relationships, losing their social network. They loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory that comes from God. Friends, These authorities believed in Jesus, but it wasn't a belief unto salvation. These men weren't truly saved. We we saw this same reality back in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, where John there tells us that many of the Jews believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And if you remember, I, I talked about the Greek there can literally be translated, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Why? Because he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts, and their hearts were far from him. And, and this is the same situation we see here in verses 42 through 43. These Jewish religious leaders, once again, they, they believe in Jesus. They believe in him intellectually, but their belief didn't lead to true commitment because their hearts were far from him. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How sad and how tragic, friends. You know, I I was thinking this week, why? Out of all of the reasons for, for why we turn our backs on Jesus, why would John highlight this in these two short verses? 
Why, why would John single this out here in, in these two short verses? Just, just, it's like this is just kind of this inserted point. And I think the reason that John inserted this here for us is because John knew that this would become a common temptation for many people. Many people hear the word. Many people hear the word preached or, or they read the truth in God's word and, and they believe Yet it's not a belief leading to salvation because they're not willing to live for Jesus and profess Jesus and confess Jesus. Many people wrestle with questions like, what will people think about me if they find out I'm a Christian? What, what, will, my, what will happen to my reputation if people find out I'm a follower of Jesus? What, what might it cost me to follow Christ and so people ask these kinds of questions, and, and many people in response to these questions will try to maintain a secret discipleship. Well, well I can believe in Jesus personally and, and not profess Jesus publicly, but friends, please understand this morning, there is no such thing as a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. As Pastor James Boyce once noted, secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms. For either the secrecy kills the discipleship or else the discipleship kills the secrecy. You cannot be a secret disciple of Jesus and be a true follower of Christ, friends. If you are a true follower of Christ, you will live for Jesus, you will confess Jesus, you will profess Jesus, and you will do so unashamedly. And what a tragic thing it is to miss out on the blessings of Christ because you love the glory of man more than the glory that comes from God. And please understand, this is serious business, friends. You might be thinking, oh, what's the big deal, right? I mean, secret disciple. I mean, who cares whether I profess Jesus? Jesus cares, friends. Look at what Jesus told his disciples in Mark 8, 38. This is serious business. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow. That's Jesus, friends, saying that. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you when I come again. What a dangerous place to be, friends. I want to just say to you this morning, if, if you're here this morning and you've been living your life ashamed of Christ, afraid to boldly live for Christ, afraid to, to openly testify for Christ, if you're one of these people who worries more about what people will think of you than what Christ thinks of you, if that's where you're at today, friends, I want to encourage you this morning to reevaluate your priorities because there's nothing more consequential than living unashamedly for Jesus. It's all that matters. Thirdly, this morning, John reveals to us the, the tragedy of unbelief finalized. The tragedy of unbelief finalized in verses 44 through 50. And here at the end of our passage this morning, we find the final public words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, John doesn't tell us here when Jesus spoke these words or, or where he spoke these words, but John simply inserts this section to confront us one last time with the essential truths Jesus came to reveal to the world. 
These are the last public words of Jesus in his ministry that the gospel of John reveals to us. From here on out, all the words we hear Jesus speak will be in the context of his followers or or in his trials privately with his accusers. And, And so John, one last time, reveals a public testimony, a public call from Christ. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Here John reveals for us four essential truths. Four essential truths we've already encountered numerous times throughout John's gospel. What does John tell us about Jesus? He says, number one, Jesus is God come in human flesh. Jesus says, look, if you see me, you've seen the one who sent me. Jesus was God's ultimate self-revelation to the world. Jesus came to bring light into our darkness, verse 46 says. Again, we are walking in darkness. We've seen these themes throughout John's gospel. We are blinded by the darkness. We are trapped in our sin and our rebellion against God. And Jesus came to shine a bright spotlight into that darkness to reveal to us the path that leads to life. Jesus says we're going to be judged one day. We're going to be judged for our response to Jesus. Jesus says, look, I I didn't come into the world to judge the world. That wasn't the point of his ministry 2,000 years ago. He came to save the world. But Jesus says, we have a judge. And who is our judge? Our judge is going to be the very words that Jesus spoke. We're going to be judged based on our response to Jesus and his word. And then Jesus declares at the end of our passage, that he is the ultimate revelation of God's authoritative plan for eternal life. God has revealed the way of salvation for us, and there's only one way, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't be saved in any other way, friends, than to put your trust in Jesus and accept the salvation that he purchased for us on the cross, forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us of all unrighteousness and leading us into new life in reconciliation with our holy creator God. There's no other way. This was God's authoritative plan. There's only Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to reject God and his word and the testimony that he's given us. Two weeks ago when I was flying into Portland, Oregon, One of the famous sights you'll see as you fly into Portland, Oregon is Mount St. Helens. Here in the picture, I took out my airplane window. There in the center of the screen, you can see this snow-covered mountaintop of Mount St. Helens. I've been fascinated with Mount St. Helens since I was a kid. Many of you might remember the story of the explosion of Mount St. Helens, May 18, 1980. I was five years old when that took place, and you can imagine as a five-year-old boy, I was fascinated watching the news at night, the the stories of this imminent eruption of Mount St. Helens. 
my, my dad used to speak out on the West Coast a lot, and so we, we had spent much time out in that area of the world, and, and so I knew Mount St. Helens intimately. We had been to it many times, and, and I was fascinated that this volcano might explode any moment. And if you remember the news accounts, I mean, it was nightly. People were following the, the rumblings and the seismologists, and, and one of the most fascinating stories that took place in the period of the explosion of Mount St. Helens was the story of a man named Harry R. Truman. Harry R. Truman was the owner of the Spirit Lake Lodge right at the base of Mount St. Helens. And Harry R. Truman had been warned by many people repeatedly that, that the mountain is going to explode. This is an active volcano. It's going to explode. And, and news reporters had gone to Harry Truman and said, Harry, you got to get off the mountain. And National Park Rangers had gone to Harry. Harry, you've got to get off the mountain. It's going to explode any day. State police from Washington had gone and pleaded, Harry, you've got to come off the mountain. And Harry said, I know this mountain better than anybody. I'll be fine. And he even said in one report to the media, when that lava starts flowing, I'm just going to get in a rowboat and head out in the middle of the lake. I'll be just fine. He repeatedly ignored the warnings. School children all over the world wrote letters pleading with Harry to come off the mountain. Uh, of all the reports that moved Harry, it's told that it was the letters from the children that were the only things that, that brought tears to his eye, was the kids pleading with him to get off the mountain. And then on May 18, 1980, in an explosion that had the power of 1,500 atomic bombs, the largest landslide ever recorded in human history took place as the mountain literally exploded laterally, cascading rock 1,500 feet up into the air, or I'm sorry, 15 miles up into the air, a plume of smoke and rock that ultimately circled the entire globe, triggering a landslide that moved at the rate of 400 miles per hour, killing 50 people. Reports estimate that Harry would have had less than 20 seconds between the explosion and the moment that the landslide struck and buried him hundreds of feet between, beneath ash and sediment there at the base of Mount St. Helens. He ignored all the warnings. He refused every offer of rescue. And now he lies buried hundreds of feet below the sediment of Mount St. Helens. And friends, I want you to understand this morning, while the volcano took his life, it was Truman who sealed his own fate. And Jesus says it's going to be the same for everyone who rejects him and his word, his word that leads to eternal life. Jesus says a day of judgment is coming. And how we respond to Jesus will make all the difference when that day of judgment comes. In Revelation chapter 6, 12 through 17, we, we read what this day of judgment will look like. And friends, I'm going to tell you, it's going to make the Mount St. Helens eruption look like a junior high science fair project. John in his revelation 
in chapter 6, he describes this day of judgment. He says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of wrath has come and who can stand? What a terrible day that's going to be, friends, for all who've turned their backs on Jesus Christ. That day is real. That day is coming. God has declared it definitively. He has given us his warning. But the good news this morning, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has offered each and every one of us a certain means of rescue. If you remember in John chapter 5, verse 24, we saw Jesus. He said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, i got to ask you this morning, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you believed in him and the one who sent him? Have you received Jesus as God's rescue plan of salvation for the world? The warning is clear. The offer has been made. The rescue is available. But each and every one of us are responsible for the choice we make. We're accountable. Did we choose for or against Jesus? God has given us the path that leads to life and life to the full. And it's only found in Jesus Christ. And when that day of judgment comes, friends, every single one of us will stand before God in his glory and he's going to judge us by the word of Jesus Christ. How did you respond to the truth I've given you? Don't make the mistake, friends, of ignoring God's truth. Trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message this morning. These are difficult truths. These are hard truths. But they are critically important truths. You have told us, Jesus said, a day of judgment is coming where you will judge this world of our sin and rebellion, judge us based on your holiness, and you will hold us accountable to the truth that you've declared, the truth that life is found in Jesus and him alone. And I just pray, Lord, that there is nobody here this morning or watching at home this morning or later this week, I pray that there is no one among us who would turn our backs on your truth but that we would joyfully and gladly receive the good news that a way of salvation has been made through Jesus Christ, 
the one who forgives us of all of our sins, who cleanses us of all unrighteousness, who brings us into a right relationship with you, our holy creator God. A relationship that leads to life everlasting and life to the full here and now. My friends, if you've never embraced that gift of new life in Jesus, I pray that you would just cry out to him right now, even in the quiet of your own heart, and say, Jesus, please forgive me. Today, Jesus, I am grabbing hold of your rescue plan for my life. I trust you. I believe in you. You are my hope. And friends, if you will turn to Jesus, he will save you. And you will be rescued forevermore because of God's amazing grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for the truth you've given us to convict us of our sin for those of us who are followers of you, to follow you more faithfully. And and Lord, may we boldly share the good news of the gospel with a world that's dying and desperately needs to hear this truth. Help us be faithful ambassadors of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, friends. Have a great week. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.